We do a brief recap of revivalism and pietism, and then we dive headlong into mysticism. Well, not really, because that would be a bad thing. But we will discuss mysticism for the rest of the show. As we do so, you'll hear some audio clips from the Reverend Jonathan Fisk of many different fames, from WeTV to his current Mad Christian to all the other things that he does, including writing great books like Broken and Echo and the soon-to-be-released Without Flesh, I believe it's called. I'm looking forward to my copy coming in the mail. And let's get started. This is Episode 4 of Has American Christianity Failed? The Book Study Bible Study here on Cafe Sola. Hi, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. A few years ago, I wrote a little book called Has American Christianity Failed? And on my YouTube channel, I asked if anybody was using that book for a book study or a Bible study of theirs. Well, my friend Christopher Hogan let me know that their Bible class was using the book, that they had some questions, and in fact, that they were recording the Bible study, and they were going to make it available on the internet and as a podcast as well. So that's what you found. The study is about to begin. I hope you enjoy it. And that is what you found. Thank you, Pastor Wolfmiller, for that kind introduction. This is, as I said, episode four of the Has American Christianity Failed Bible Study Book Study here on Cafe Sola. I'm your host for this and your Bible study teacher, I guess, Christopher Hogan, as you can see there on the bottom of the screen. If you're new to seeing this or you haven't yet done so, please remember to like, and follow and subscribe, particularly subscribe. We are currently at 148 viewers, 148 listeners on the YouTubes, and I don't have the numbers right now for Podbean and iTunes, but I do know that the podcast, as it appears there, is reaching around the world, and I'll tell you more about that next week. But for right now, please share this with your friends, share this with people that need to hear about whether American Christianity has failed or not, which, you know, of course it has, but we still need to study about this. So pass it around. We need all this good stuff to get out there and be uh, more Lutherans uh, active on the interwebs and on the YouTube and on the podcasts. So let's just go ahead and get started. All right, let's get started. Um I'll put this disclaimer on the, the screen just in case we had any more visitors, because I don't think you guys have a problem with what we're studying, but um, some of the stuff we're going to learn about, and we've already learned about, is difficult to hear, because we're just kind of, we're all creatures of, of, of what we've been exposed to and experienced in our lives, even if we're cradle Lutherans, we've been exposed to stuff. So some things are just difficult to hear, and they challenge us a little more. So... You know, you guys are very honest about what you're thinking, but this is just kind of in case we had another visitor. Once again, we're studying from this book um, by Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. He did not have time this week to answer any questions, but he probably will by next week. So let's go ahead and open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great day, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to be gathered together to be about the study of your word and to also study uh, concerns we might have with the church, Lord, and how we can keep those from affecting us and and our church, Lord, your church. Uh, We ask you to bless our time 
the readings, the meditations of our hearts. Just be with us, Lord, and lead and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gentle folk. In Genesis 3, Scripture says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, that fruit of that tree, uh, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desiring to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. Is that a good thing that their eyes were opened? <laughs> their eyes were opened because they listened to the devil instead of listening to God. But yeah, the key things in here that we're going to talk about today are is verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and then it was a delight to the eyes, and it was. <clears throat> Desiring to make one wise. Okay. So just keep this, that passage in mind. So what? this is just a little reminding us of where we've been in the past few weeks. What is revivalism? Anyone? Anyone? Well, revivalism is the belief in or the promotion of a revival of religious fervor. Have you ever, you've heard of tent revivals and revival services, right? The whole purpose of those is to kind of have an effect on the people that show up to revive them, which kind of implies a lot of stuff and it's a whole other Bible study, but that's what revivalism basically is. And what does it teach, Steve? (laughs) It teaches that the Christian life begins with your personal decision to accept Christ. That's what those revival meetings drive people towards. They drive people towards making it down at that altar call. And they will sometimes go on for days and weeks and months and years and decades just with the sole goal of getting somebody to make that decision. We aren't leaving here until 100 people come up and say Right. I'm going to keep preaching until we reach our quota. (laughs) Uh, so what's the danger of revivalism? Anybody remember what the danger of it is? You're saving yourself. Yeah, exactly. Your focus is on this, not on the saving work of Christ, but on your decision. We would have to be honest as Lutherans and say, well, if they walked down there to accept Christ, they were probably already saved by the Holy Spirit if they were hearing the word preached prior to that. But... The Christian that does this tends to look back on their life like the Gideon Bible and say, this is the day and hour and minute and second that I made my decision for Christ, not I was baptized and Christ saved me kind of thing. So what is pietism? One flows into the other, right? What's pietism? Pietism is an exaggerated or affected pious sentiment or nature. You... You don't look rightly upon yourself. You have this exaggerated sense of your Christianity and your good works and all that kind of stuff. And what does it teach? It teaches that the Christian life is chiefly marked by, not by the fact that you are called and saved by Christ, but by the fact that you now are more awesome than everybody else. 
And the danger of pietism, what's the danger of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought? You're better than others. Yeah. You start to categorize yourself. You say things like, well, you're a Christian, but are you a born-again Christian? I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I've heard that before. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you're a Lutheran, but are you a Christian? I used to hear, oh, you're a Catholic, but are you a Christian? When I was a Catholic. We start categorizing. And that's very dangerous. It, marks, it makes growth in works the chief aim of the Christian life. Not faith in Christ, which produces good works, but it makes the works themselves the chief aim and the chief mark. Uh, and it becomes a centrality of, of our faith, and therefore it doesn't really bring us a whole lot of comfort because we will swing from, hey, I'm doing really good, to hey, I'm really screwing up back and forth on this pendulum. Instead of resting in the comfort of, I am baptized into Christ. And what I, the good that I do, he does in me. That kind of comfort. So where does an Amish fit in this scheme, then? Or they... They simply reject the pleasures of this world or mm -hmm. the comfort of this world in order to focus on their relationship with each other and with God. I'm, I honestly, I'm, I'm, I, I've studied Amish people, Amish stuff before, but I don't remember enough details about it. But. I saw the TV show. I like their furniture. That's what <laughs> we yeah. were in uh, on a trip with uh, an uh, dinner with the Amish family, and I thought uh, we're in a Lutheran uh, Lutheran church because everything was so Lutheran. I mean, in German also, except uh, they don't believe in uh, early uh, commitment for Christ. They believe in when you're 16, 17, then you make a decision to become uh, a follower of Christ, but before that, you can just by do anything you want to. Yeah, and you're saved, but even though you do anything you want to. As of, so I always just want to ask people that believe in the age of accountability stuff, what happens to that person, that child, that baby, if they die before they make a decision for Christ? What comfort is there in that? You have to invent a doctrine that's not in the Bible. They're dedicated to Christ long before them. Yes. Yeah. Right. Whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. But you want to go with, uh, and, and as good Lutherans, which we shouldn't shy away from calling ourselves, you want to go with what brings the most comfort. And what's, well, first of all, it has to line up with Scripture, but also what brings the most comfort. Is it more comforting to say, you know, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, you know, or is it more comforting to say they were baptized when they were a baby? You know. So now we can move on. Um, so has anybody just has this been been racking around anybody's brain? Has anybody been thinking about either revivalism or pietism? Over any thoughts on that before we move into the next topic? I have turned my taxes over to the accountant. It's, they're done, all right? And I thought I was going to be short on my contribution because Trinity only gets part of my money. So I never really liked it other than in my checkbook and in my, uh, in my checkbook. I did my taxes. 
I, I did the sheet on my contribution, and I went, wow, I'm a pretty good guy. <laughs> you know, uh, golly, here I was, I'd have been satisfied with this number, but now I got this number, so I really feel good about myself, you know? And uh, it was pietism from the word go. Chairman of the Finance Committee, we appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I could hear the part of it only get part of it. Yeah. And that's <laughs> the thing just to keep in mind is that if we start saying those things don't have any effect on us, that then we're probably in more danger than we care to be in. We have to admit that to some degree all of these things that we're going to be talking about affect us. Even if it's just in our personal life. We may be perfectly pious in the good way, Lutherans, when we come to church, but they might affect us in other ways, in other parts of our lives. So, today, we're going to proceed to mysticism. What is a mystic? Let's start with the root part of that word. What is a mystic? Something you can't quite figure out. That's a mystery. Okay. Which it's it's related actually, but <laughs> it's a mystery. Yeah. A fortune teller, a magician, somebody at a carnival that you know can read people's minds. You know, he's a mystic, a fort, you know, tarot card reader, mystics, right? Well, the internet defines mystic as a person who seeks by contemplation and self surrender to obtain unity with or absorption into the deity or an or the absolute or who believes in the spiritual apprehension of truths that are beyond the intellect. Nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> right? There's no problems with that. The uh, ending clause is truth. Uh, <clears throat> Properly understood. Yes. Yeah. Um, Truths that are beyond our intellect, right? But but what they're really referring to is this is not something that, that that's knowable. Mm -hmm. And when you're a mystic, you're getting a special word kind of a thing. It's like yeah. you're in, like the you know the the, the Oracle at Delphi. Anybody know that story mm -hmm. where people yeah. would go and they would. Um, kind of pay alms or whatever and, and this person would go and sit in a lady probably go sit in a chair above a pit that would probably had hallucinogenic gases coming out of the pit and, and she would come up with an answer to their question and then she they she, it could take a day a week a month and the, the people would have to stay there and camp out and wait for the answer until and, and it's usually like like most like carnival mystic type people it was usually something that was just carefully worded to where there was plausible deniability in it, but it could be true, like a fortune cookie, <laughs> you know? But it was all under the guise of, this is a special word just for you, kind of stuff. Has anybody ever talked to you in that kind of language? Like... For so, 15 so, bucks, you can get it right down here in Loyola. Yeah. The lady yeah. hangs on her sign. She yeah. went up. She was 10. Now she's 15. Now, obviously, she's got a richer clientele. Yeah. Inflation. Yeah. Inflation. Um, and that wooden shack costs a lot to maintain. No, she lives in her apartment right there. <laughs> well, there's one somewhere I've seen that's kind of more like a wooden shack. But, um, but I've had people, I've sat across the lunch table from a guy when he invited his mom when we were 
doing a video shoot and stuff, and, and her mom just sat down and she goes, the Lord just gave me a special word for you. Oh, that's nice. What does it have to do? And all everything she had to do is kind of, you know, she could tell I was married, so she said something about being married and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, <clears throat> can that happen? Uh, maybe, I don't know. But what would you do in a situation like that? The Lord gave me a word for you. Run. Run, right. <laughs> Flee to the hills. Get behind me, see. Yeah, I would say, if I had my Bible, I would open it up and say, okay, um, which one of these words did he give you for me? Because if it's not in the Bible, you know. Pastors who say, God clearly spoke to me and God said. They're lying. Was that harsh? No. They're lying. There was a pastor on this week. He said uh, he was trying to uh, raise money for a new sound system, a new video system, a million dollars for a new video system. And uh, but God said to him, no, no, no. What you have to do is you have to go down to the abortion clinic and have a prayer service out in the street. So it wasn't a prayer service, it was a worship service out in the street. Mm -hmm. So he's, and he, he says, God, and they said, you go down to the abortion clinic, you have devotion, you do this, you do this. And he says, God said every word of it. God told me clearly. And how that had to do with this million dollars, I never quite figured out. I guess I'll give you the million dollars if you do this for me. We may get in a, a good stalled out place talking about this, but um, phrases like, well, God put this on my heart. What do, you, what do you test that against? Can you test it against anything? Can you question somebody's experience? Well, when I was out in the wilderness, God spoke to me. Or well, we prayed about this, and then we did it. Yeah. But... Why did you do it? Well, we prayed about it. Is it possible that the devil can also answer your prayer? Slip Wilson says yes. <laughs> sure. Said, said yes. Said yes. <clears throat> it's things like that, that that just are very concerning in the church. It doesn't necessarily mean you go immediately to they're not a Christian, but they're just very, very concerning. And a lot of people that do that are trying to say, God spoke to me this morning at 4 o'clock when I was getting ready to do this Bible study, and he told me to tell you guys this. You might as well have blank pages in the back of your Bible and just write exactly what I'm going to tell you in the back of your Bible, because if God told it to me, it should be in here. In a way. God doesn't, God doesn't motivate us to do stuff. I didn't say that. I know, that's what I'm trying to get clear. Yeah. But special revelations from God, if it's not in the Bible, I mean, we even have a scripture that backs that up, right? These things are written so that you may believe. There's nothing in the Bible that says, look for special revelation from God. Look for words outside of his word. Does, though? If you want to be a modern-day prophet, yeah. Doesn't God speak to the Or a mystic, if you want to be a mystic. John. 
Well, the same thing. You know, it, 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 sort of, they're connected. What would be a mis- what would be mysticism or a mystic in the in the Christian church? It'd be somebody who's seeking unmediated contact with God. God told me I need to raise nine million dollars to build this prayer te- this prayer tower, or He's going to take my life. That never happened. Who said that? God took Oral Roberts. I know. Mm-hmm. God took his life. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that time. <laughs> this night your life will be required of you. you got to be very, very careful saying, thus saith the Lord. A lot of people do. A lot of people in the Christian church do. And they teach people to say that. Because, hey, if he can have the direct connection with God and get the direct word from God, I should be able to get one too. Right? Isn't that what we're supposed to be taught? It's trying to apprehend some truth that is not in Scripture but is given directly to you um, through your quiet time, quote-unquote. Again, words that get abused. Could you, could, could you as a Lutheran say, I'm having quiet time with God? Yes. Well, what are you doing when you're having your quiet time? Praying. Praying. Or reading the word and meditating on the word. Are you looking for God to give you some warm and fuzzy feeling about something? Are you looking for God to give you actual audible words about something? To to if you're doing that, you're you're tripping off into mysticism. The mystic goes into their quiet time looking for that, looking for that prompting of the spirit, as they might call it, to say, God wants me to go down to the abortion clinic and have an an outside church service or whatever. God put that on my heart. God told me that this morning. I actually heard him say that. Sorry, you're lying. Doesn't happen. Or you can ask him, where was that burning bush? Yeah. Well, say, well, if somebody says, hey, God gave me a word for you, Here's an idea. Say, well, next time God gives you a word for me, tell him to talk to me directly, because if he can talk to you, he can talk to me. If he can't talk to me, but he can only talk to you. Because they want to be special. They want to be this mystic. They want to be somebody who has this direct connection with God. And then people will follow them. Right? They will gather people unto themselves, telling them what their itching ears want to hear. They... Christian church really has been hit here recently. You have the Catholics, you have the Baptists, and even Second Baptist uh, was hit. And now the Southern, I mean the United Methodist Church is in the news where uh, people criticize people who uh, are Christians. And the question there is, has American Christianity failed? Well, Christianity didn't fail. It's the people. It's what Americans have done with it that's, that's made it broke, that, yeah. that's made it. Christianity. Christianity itself will never fail. God will always preserve his church. There will always be true Christianity somewhere. Maybe not in America. It may totally, God may totally pull the plug on America. Talked to my brother yesterday in Sioux City, Iowa, and there's five Lutheran churches in Sioux City, and four of the five are really struggling. Why? Why? 
because they're boring. All right? Uh, We're going to get to that, so hang on to that thought. Okay. <laughs> but no, well, why do you think their four out of the five are failing? Well, I know why his is failing. They, uh, they picked the wrong color carpet? No, they called a pastor down who was supposed to be the pastor to the, I think, Filipino population that's around the church. Mm -hmm. And he decided, even though he's from there, he doesn't want to do that. So the senior pastor got disenchanted. He left. So the one they're left with is the guy who barely speaks English, <laughs> but doesn't want to speak to the Filipino. <laughs> it's probably not Filipino. It's probably, it's probably Latin or something. I don't know. But anyway, it's they're just dying. They're just running out the door in droves. Again, problem with American Christianity, it's a problem with Christianity, is we tend to group together like most people do. We want community. We want like people around us. We want similarity. Some churches are so against that that they do everything they can to be as diverse as they can, which leads them into being revivalistic and being mystic and all that kind of thing because they want to draw in as many people as possible from as many varied backgrounds as possible. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's how you go about doing what you're going to do. What's your filter is, is what I've been saying for like 15 or 20 years now. What's your filter? When you're deciding on a new thing to do in church, what's your filter? Is it, hey, it works in business, let's do it in the church. Bad filter. Is it, we can, we can find this in the Bible or this doesn't go against the Bible, whatever. What's your filter? Is it is it the Bible? Is it the Word of God? Or is it some new corporate America growth policy, you know, thing? Uh, what's the big lie in, in, of, uh, of mysticism? Well, it teaches that you can have this direct, unmediated contact with God. And we're going to have some audio here, so I'm going to kind of clip through these, and then we can uh, chat a little bit. What is the big lie of mysticism? And mysticism is the belief that somehow you can find God in your emotions, or that the path to God is in your heart. Uh, that is to say that, that God wants you to have an immediate connection with Him, a non-mediated connection, right? Uh, as opposed to meeting God face-to-face -face in Jesus Himself, God wants to actually inhabit you through your emotions. And the Holy Spirit is a real nice foil for this, since the Spirit clearly does live inside us through faith. Uh, it makes it very easy to, to point to our emotions as some sort of proof for the Holy Spirit. Uh, but this is not what the Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit does. Uh, he, he is not there to give us warm fuzzies. Uh, he is there to help us believe in the words that Jesus did speak to us when he was face-to-face -face with us, that those words are the medium, uh, the mediation by which God wants us to know and establish our relationship with him. Uh, and similarly, the sacraments work the same way. But mysticism doesn't want that. Mysticism doesn't want a God who's so simple and clear as to give you words to believe that are enough. Uh, mysticism wants you to, to not trust those words and seek for something more through your emotions, a divine contact point, a moment of, of feeling for sure that God is with you. Uh, there was a book written a while back called Seizing Your Divine Moment, uh, and there, at least a while ago, back when I was in evangelical circles, I'd hear the phrase, it's a God thing. I use that all the time. I do too. 
that's why I said this class might be a little difficult <laughs> because there's things in here that we all do that we, that we all uh, and you can probably do them correctly it's whether you know are we on the fence are we tripping over you know where are we going I asked a question of myself if mystics in the church myst people are into mysticism in the church have such a high regard for all this unmediated contact with God and this moving of their hearts and all this kind of stuff, why do they have a hard, hard time, a nearly impossible time, dealing with infant baptism and the Lord's Supper? <clears throat> he even brought it up in that audio clip. They can believe that God can speak to them directly at home in their closet, but he can't be present in the bread and wine at the communion rail. They can believe that he... Go ahead. It's... I believe mysticism is not about, you know, gratifying God, but about self-gratification. None of it's about, you know, actually God. It's all about how good I am. How very, special I am. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's, it's this focusing on ourselves. So when we're, where American Christianity has failed is that it stops being about God and about neighbor, and it's all about self. So he talked about it's a God thing, right? So have you ever heard someone say or said yourself, it's a God thing? I have. Did it yesterday. You know? Hey, um, so-and-so just called me out of the blue. And like, That's a God thing. Hmm. Could be. If you use, if, if, again, terms that get misused, terms that get abused. Could God have prompted that person, if you will, to call you and that brought you the comfort you know that you needed it to give them uh, yeah I guess that's possible right God can do those kind of things but when you say it's a God thing can it go bad can saying that really be more mystical and less biblical the answer would be yes God knows the desires of your heart so I usually use it in connection with something came about out of the blue, mm -hmm. where... Uh, Again, unmediated. That could be unmediated, right? But uh, and when, it, when it's there, I go, how did that happen? It had to be a God thing. I have to be very careful, as, and you probably did too as a teacher, sometimes in the middle of class I just say something, and I don't know, I hadn't really thought about it, and it just comes out, and it's like, wow. Um, Donald Trump? Hmm? Your name's Donald Trump? Yeah. <laughs> I don't tweet like that, but... Um, Speech like that, too. And I've said stuff in front of Janet, and she'd be like, where'd that come from? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's a God thing, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's because I had some point I wanted to make, and it just sounded like a God thing. <laughs> How many times have you heard of maybe an evangelical uh, say that you know, the Katrina thing was brought about by God, or this hurricane or tornado was brought about by God. <clears throat> and I don't, I mean, is it used for, to get everybody's, you know, thoughts on, well, this is God punishing sin, or, or what? I mean, you know, what's, uh, I guess, the... Yes, and they, they can point to words in the Bible to support it. Right. Yeah. God hates this, and they were doing a lot of that there. Therefore, God sent them a hurricane. Or, 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 or you know, God says, if you obey, you'll, you'll receive rewards. Mm -hmm. so, 
I obeyed and I got a new car. It's a God thing. Mm -hmm. But you can see, yeah, exactly how easy it is for all of us to trip off into mysticism. I prayed to God as to what job I should take, this good job or that good job. Not this job that's really immoral and, and awful and I shouldn't take it versus this one that's really good. That's an easy choice. But this good job or that good job? And I was looking for that unmediated, warm and fuzzy feeling telling me which one I should take. Well, guess which one you're going to take? The one you want. The one you want. And you're going to say, God put that on my heart. Maybe he did. But chances are, you wanted that job, you prayed about it, and now you can give God credit or blame, whatever, for making you move to Topeka. And we had a Lutheran pastor who came and, and accepted our call, and he, he claims that he anguished over the call. And he says that he was sitting in church one morning, and he clearly heard God say, Go, I've made this for you. He should never have been hired. <laughs> He was defrocked later. So. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he had other issues, but well, that was probably a sign. Uh, is, so anyway, isn't mysticism connected to dreams? Yep, dreams, visions, all that stuff. For instance, uh, about a week or two ago, I had a dream that this person died, and I had to make a decision to go to funeral or not, and. Uh, Two days later, I looked in the obituary, this uh, obituary. Huh. Don't have a dream about me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, please stop dreaming, Rudy. I have had some really awful dreams lately. I sure hope that none of them are prophetic. <laughs> yeah, but that sounds more uh, like a premonition. Premonition. Yeah. Well, but see, the dreams is a whole. We could do a whole Bible study on dreams if you want, oh, dreams yeah. and visions. But the, that does get in that same general category. A while ago, back when I was in evangelical circles, I'd hear the phrase "it's a God thing," and what they meant was something happened in my life, and the experience is so uh, coincidental that it had to be God, and so I'll, I'll, I'll say it's God's action in my life. But through this personal experience that I undergo, I now have contact with the divine essence. Uh, when Scripture doesn't really tell us this is ever going to happen. I mean, there's certainly times in, in, in history where, you know, when, when Paul is walking past a guy, or Peter's walking past a guy, and his shadow heals him. Well, yeah, I, I guess you could call that a divine moment, right? Um, but that isn't even there, uh, the proof of God's will for that man. Peter himself says in his own work that we have something more clear, the prophetic word. Right? That, that's where God wants us to know that he is mediating eternal life to us. Mysticism seeks to turn us away from that clear word and to our own emotions and feelings uh, as the kind of proof that God is with us, which can be highly disastrous. I mean, golly, I, I kind of jest a little bit, but you know what happens when you, when you eat a bad burrito? Uh, has God left you? You know, when you got the flu, you spend those three days, and that's usually where my heart actually goes, those three days that I'm sitting on the couch puking into a plastic garbage bag. God, where are you? God, how could you let this happen to me? Well, that's my mysticism. I'm trusting that my experience is telling me what God thinks of me, when that's not what Scripture says. What God thinks of me is that he's baptized me into the death and resurrection of his son, and he's basically said, hey, buddy, you're going to die here? I'm actually going to kill you eventually, uh, so just hang on. Uh, keep trusting
trusting my word because I've also beat death. I'm going to bring you through it. In the meantime, I'll feed you. You know, I'll give you a family, some kids, uh, and some work to do. But don't put your hope in those things because that's not actually the proof of me. The proof of me is the resurrection of Jesus. Take and eat this body and blood. Uh, trust that these waters have washed you from your sin. Mysticism hates that. Mysticism wants to have uh, our best life now, as it were. Of course, that gets ahead uh, to one of the other rules. So, wow, you know. I see a danger in, in, in trying to keep God out of things. That's kind of what I'm seeing here. And it's early in this discussion, but, you know. It, no, it's, probably, it's, it's making sure that God's in the right place. Scripture says that uh, God knows his ours are our heart. He knows our comings in and our goings out. Yes. All our, all our deeds are orchestrated by God. From the beginning of the world, things were planned for me. So I can't. There's a whole lot. But does he say... Go now and and try your best to figure out what that plan is. So, if by through special revelation from me, or does he say, "Go live your life. I got this." That's comforting to me. You know, go make decisions. They'll work out, or they won't. But don't let them draw you away from me. I used to teach that when you have a decision, a major decision, they were like six steps you take before you make that decision. Number one, did you pray about it? Number two, does the scripture have anything to say about it? Number three, did you seek counsel of godly people, people who you trust to tell you what they think is right, not what they they want you to hear? Uh, Five is do, are there windows and doors being opened or closed that you can see that would prohibit you from one decision or another. And the last one, did you use your sanctified common sense? And after you've gone down that list, then what do you really think you should be doing? What what decision should you make? So I don't know if that's an intervention of God in there or mysticism of God, I think. But you can see where people can, can trip off into things like, well, my mom and dad don't really like this guy I want to marry. But I'm so in love with him, I'm going to marry him anyway. Right? It might work out, it might not. But are they seeking godly counsel, like you said? Are they seeking the counsel of others? Is that person, like I know people that are like, oh, oh, oh I'm going to go marry a Jewish fella and I'm going to convert him to Christianity. No. Marry him if you want, but don't marry him for the sole purpose of converting him to Christianity. But if you pray about a decision... How could you expect an answer? If you're expecting an unmediated answer, a direct contact with God, you're in mysticism. Don't we say in Scripture, Lord, show me the path that I should go? Don't we say that? Make my path straight. My confirmation verse is in uh, Psalm 37, uh, 7. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, properly understood, yes. What are the desires of your heart if you are delighting yourself in the Lord? It's his will for your life, right? It's not, the desire of my heart is to go have an affair. That could be a real desire for some people's heart. God's not going to give you that desire of your heart. It's a wrong desire. It doesn't line up with the Ten Commandments very well. Right? <laughs> right, at all. <laughs> so our hearts, our, the Bible also speaks very clearly about how 
dark and dingy and smelly and stinky and evil our hearts are. We don't trust our hearts. Our heart, we're going to get into a little bit of this in a little bit, but um, what does thinking like he was describing lead to? Well, we can start looking for God in our experiences. Like, I felt the right way about that, or I prayed about that and it happened, it must have been a God thing. Well, the door was closed. That do- I, I, that's a phrase that's bugged me almost my entire right. life, that you know, God closes a door and opens a window, or whatever the phrase is. <laughs> Um, I do believe that God's in control. I do believe that he has a plan for my life, but I don't believe it's my job to go into my closet and pray to him and say, God, what should I do today? Should I get up and go to work or should I not? Yes, get up and go to work. (laughs) I don't need God for that. Should I love my wife as you love the church? Yes, I need your word for that. I don't need my warm and fuzzies for that. Your word tells me to love her even when she's the most unlovable. And thank God she knows that back in reverse because sometimes I'm not all that lovable, right? But the word tells us what we should do. That's where we get our confirmation. We don't get our confirmation in our feelings and our emotions. And that's why this is a hard lesson. What purpose then do outward experiences serve? We have them. We all have them. Sometimes, like, I know people like, I was driving down the road and there was this guy on the side of the road and, and, and I had felt God telling me to pull over and help him. Well, that's a good Samaritan thing, so maybe you actually read that in the scriptures more than God actually speaking to you about it. And then blah, 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 blah happened and it was a God thing. It was a destined encounter. Maybe it was. But where are you going with that? Are you special Are you so special that God gives you all these divine encounters? Are you more special than the mom who just stays at home and changes her baby's diapers? That's where it goes in all these nasty little crevices. Because i got to go tell everybody my experience that I had. I have to draw attention to myself, which is what Max said. It's all about drawing attention to yourself. So all these things, are, are, our outward experiences in mysticism are there to confirm what we actually already felt inside. Right? That's the whole praying about it for peace. Well, you're going to have peace about the one you want to do. How many people have prayed for peace about a decision and said, this one's really uncomfortable, but I'm going to go do it. This one's real easy. <laughs> this one's real hard. I'm going to go do the hard one. You know. The mystical way this failed attempt to reach God kind of combines outer experience. That is, you mentioned before, people see these little coincidences or signs in their life with that inner experience to make a really potent and convincing cocktail. You say that the great danger of mysticism is how powerful and how convincing it actually is. Absolutely. It's it's like drug-like. And it, it really is about the inner experience. You're using the outer experiences to create the inner experience. So I, whatever outer experience gives me the greatest inner feeling, the greatest uh, roller coaster rush of emotions, the, the highest peak that I can find. And this, you know, uh, trails really easily into much of what passes for uh, church and worship today. Uh, I tend to call it revivalism. Most other people call it contemporary worship. It's not contemporary. It's 200 years old. It's called revivalism, which is the belief that by using new measures, uh, the latest, greatest music, 
particularly, the, the most moving music you can possibly find for any culture. By, by using this, we can manipulate the emotions of the congregation in such a way that they will be convinced that God is present by the emotions we create in them. And the, the author of this, the creator of this, uh, Charles Finney, was uh, very clear about this, that it is up to man to do this, uh, that, that we, and we can use any means possible to move people to putting their trust in Christ, to an act of will which would, would choose for Christ. Uh, and he's, he believed firmly that, that catchy music was the best way to do this, because you could convince the people that that is, in fact, God. And he, you know, in an authentic way, he did believe that this would then, once they made that decision for Christ, they really would be Christians. He was an Arminian, uh, so he, he really did believe that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, like you say, this is a, a potent thing uh, to be uh, swayed. It's very potent, right? It's impotent. Okay. <laughs> it's just very potent. Have you, I've been in churches where they will sing emotional-driven songs for 45 minutes, trying to bring God down into that worship service and, and feel a certain way before the pastor can finally grace them on the stage and give them a message. Well, they've been so emotionally manipulated that he could tell them that the devil is the Christ, and they would probably believe it sometimes. But the real goal is just to get more people to make decisions. So most of them have probably a good sort of intent. We want to get you so worked up, so emotionally driven, that you'll come for the altar call, because then we can have more numbers or whatever. You, know? you had something to say. I was just thinking that, that um, I'm not sure all the songs they're singing are as much about... Obviously, it is to create a, a mood, but it's also so you walk out there going, "Wow, was that ever a great service? Wow, was that ever? I love that. Same wow, thing. was that ever good? Yeah, same thing. And uh, so I think they'll say, "Well, we got to get the wow factor in here again, mm -hmm. and again, and again, again, and again." And when people start getting too comfortable with what you're doing, going to wow them more. You have to wow them more. <clears throat> it's a constant ramping up of the wow to either get new people or keep old people. Steve, well, <clears throat> what did Kretzman say? I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have Kretzman <laughs> open at the moment. I'm still, I just got back from a 500-mile trip uh, oh, last my. night. So, oh, my. Um, you know, it seemed, I went down to McAllen. I had a conference down Border there. crossing or what? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> this, uh, this he was time, helping uh, build the wall. <laughs> I, was, I, I was down there with our DAP program. <laughs> um, gosh, I'm starting to forget what I was going to talk about. That's what age does, doesn't it? That's what 500 miles will do to you. Um, <laughs> why did you ask me about what I did? No, um, oh, gosh. So where, where does it cross over from the tugging of the Holy Spirit to a mysticism type thing? Uh, we're going to get there. Let's, let's, let's move forward because we will get there. Have you ever really, 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 really struggled with something that you really wanted to do God's will and were disappointed that he didn't speak? I've never expected God to speak, honestly. No, not speak, but God to give me a sign. or. I've never prayed for a sign that I'm I was the principal of school here for five years, and I was not a happy camper. It was a difficult time in our history because of finances and because of personnel and all kinds of stuff. And uh, at that time, we were just a church and a school. There were no adult Bible classes. There were no uh, anything to do with, 
well, there was a men's club at Lays A, but that was actually working outside the church, but there was no vacation Bible schools or any of that kind of stuff. So we wanted to start that. We talked about it. So during a, during a time when I just had it <laughs> with the school, uh, the pastor and I talked, and I said, uh, let's, let's do it now. And he goes, all right. So we created this position called a parish, a parish assistant. And now he says, well, so now which one do you want? See, and I hadn't thought of that before. You want to be principal or parish assistant? I just assumed. You know, and now I had to go back and rethink it. And I really, I mean, I remember standing in the shower saying, Lord, you've got to help me. This one. I don't know. Because I don't, if this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. You know, not a peep. <laughs> peep. Finally, I said, you know what? I'm tired of all the phone calls. I'm taking the new job. <laughs> you know? And that's yeah. that's kind of the way life is. You yeah. do what you think you'll be successful at, and I don't regret it at all. Yeah. God worked all things together for good in that particular. He, it's like doing, staying where you were or doing the new thing, God was going to be there. That's the thing. We think, well, God's left this one now, so I have to pursue that one. He closed a door, so now he's opening a window or whatever the saying is. Um, <laughs> it's like, sometimes it's just a change of jobs. I mean, really, I mean. I remember now. Please. Old age. It took you a while. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I know that a lot of people get the good feeling and the fuzzy feeling uh, based on is it the delivery of the sermon or is it the words in the sermon? In other words, sometimes mm -hmm. people are so outgoing and, and they can they can really catch the interest of their crowd. Kind of like some of your good college professors, you know? If you're using a monotone voice and people are just kind of kind of fall asleep, or if you're using a you know very outgoing mm -hmm. and, and excited <laughs> voice, uh, but I mean it, it it's it's kind of that way, you know. Well, capital campaign consultants will tell you says you have to tell your story and tell it passionately. Right. Yeah. And, and I wasn't in church when Pastor talked about uh, the, the first uh, section about doing the, the audio visual upgrade in order to do everywhere is here. But when I went back and reviewed it, I mean, he was very passionate for 10 minutes about why we need to do this and what we're going to accomplish with this and how it's a great thing. No, and we're not so, going to go there. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, I just envision the consultants says that yeah. this is an example yeah. of telling your story and being passionate yeah. about it. Yeah. This will raise a lot of money. Do this. Right. <laughs> right. And what does that do? I mean, just look at it honestly. Don't, don't try not to well, we'll judge too much, but but it, what it is is this is what works outside the church in the corporate world, in the business world. This is how we run a corporation. This is how we motivate people to do stuff in the corporation. Let's put that in the church. It's what the world defines as leader. Yeah, I've heard of that very safe state. Yeah, and you know, I'd be more like a business. Yeah, Bill Hybels bought into something that somebody had had. Uh, who I can't remember his name, started this whole trend towards the business um, marketing coming into the church and stuff, and Bill Hybels got into it, and that's why Willow Creek became as big as it was, because they were marketing it so well, but it, they weren't faithful week in and week out to just the preaching and teaching of God's Word. They had a, they had a totally different growth model, and it caused as many people to go out the back door as were coming in the front door. 
You know, in the end, he even admitted it was a failure. But in the meantime, 10, 15, 20 years, he got a lot of other people to copy him. <laughs> um, so I prayed to God to give me peace about a decision, and lo and behold, he answered in a way that gave me what I wanted, and I had peace about it. <laughs> Happens all the time. Is this why, is part of the hook that mysticism can get into us, is our tendency to confuse, as you've been talking about it here, strong emotional experiences with the spirit, with divine activity? Yeah, that, that's the entire uh, reality. Um, it is. I don't even know that that's like the, just the hook. That is mysticism. Uh, that I will believe that what I have felt is God's word. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, his nonverbal word. You, you hear this Christian say, you know, pray about it, God will give you an answer. They don't mean that, uh, uh, that God will, you know, in Scripture teach you to look at Jesus more. Uh, what they mean is that uh, you will find some sort of uh, warm, fuzzy emotion, some peace in a certain direction, right? So and I used to say this stuff, too, uh, back in the day uh, when I was kind of an evangelical. You know, um, I had two, a decision to make, and I didn't know which decision. It was kind of tough. Two options. They both seem like they have good things, and so I pray and pray and pray and look for peace in one of the decisions. And if I can find some feeling of peace in one of the decisions, then therefore that must be God's will. And I'll go chase after that one. Holy moly, what a lot to set up for yourself, though. I mean, how, what if you can't find any peace? And that's just what happens to a lot of evangelicals. They, they, they're searching for God's presence so hard, and they can find it every time that they sing the songs and hit the new harmonies for a little while. What happens when it starts to wear off? What happens when you can't find that peace anymore because the music got old? That's a scary thing right there. It's just like you're saying, what if you found no peace about your decision? What do you do? You make a decision. What do you think God wanted you to do in the first place? Which exactly what I did. Make a decision. The church has changed since that time. Yeah. All this, all of everything from the food pantry to, to the Bible classes to the children's, it's all changed. What you, any of that. what you shouldn't be hearing me saying, I hope, is there's no value to praying. There's no value. Because what, is, what should prayer, praying kind of involve? It should involve the scriptures. It should involve God's word. It should involve thy will be done. Even Jesus himself didn't say, my will be done. He said, thy will be done, right? So when we go to make a decision and we end up with our will being done, if we're honest with ourselves, we left God out of it, even though we went to him in prayer. Some time ago, I shared a story about a college professor I had. It's, it's right on track here. His name is Kirk, Dean Kirk. And he had three calls. He had to call the Concordia Sur, he had to call the Wisconsin, and call the Washington or something like that. He says, now how do I know which one God wants me to do? He says, if I've prayed about it, and if I'm waiting for a bowl of lightning, it ain't coming. He says, what I have to understand that these calls came about by some congregation, some university praying over it. He says, now, whichever one I take, God's going to bless the earth. He's going to bless me in whatever. He's going to bless my decision. You know, and I went... Boy, that was, I didn't realize how important that, that little talk was in a, in, a, in a life. I've never received a call, so I don't know what pastors go through. It's always just struck me as a little odd that they would say, I was praying about this and God told me to take this one versus that one. I don't know that that happens. I don't understand that. I'm not a pastor, so I don't understand it. They weren't in Dean Kirk's class. But um, the, the role of our emotions... We don't throw them out, right? We just aren't driven by them. 
So these outward experiences determine your decision. For a lot of people, they, they have an inner feeling and they look for an outward experience to confirm their inner feeling and it's all about them. They could influence. I mean, I mean, the, I think the word influence. Feelings, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're influence. gonna we're, we got to get there. Right. Have you ever been to a rock concert? I have. Gary hasn't. He's too old, fogeyish. Have you ever been to a rock concert and gotten kind of caught up in it? No. You know, and been like, oh, this is so awesome! I've got to scream at the Beatles or you know, or fog hat or whoever. You were old if you saw the Beatles. <laughs> um, and have you ever been drawn into that experience? A lot of people are. Like the woods, surely. Not everybody. There, there's just a, there's, there's a, there's a truth. Some people are more driven by feelings and emotions and some people aren't. Some people go to a concert and they're just enjoying the music. I go to Steely Dan, I'm, I'm clapping at the end of the song, but I'm not like worked up. And then I see other people in the crowd and they're like, hey, it's Steely Dan, yay! You know, like, okay. That's just not me. Could be on the road. <laughs> you know? Is the rodeo a rock concert? <laughs> Some of it is. Been to the rodeo. Yeah. Didn't get worked if up. you ever saw a performance there, but they're so far away, it's hard to get worked up. The best way to get worked up is to be close to the stage. Right? So what's going on in these rock concerts? Well, they're designed to draw people in like their music or want to hear what they have to say or sing or whatever and give them an experience that's so moving they'll feel high and lifted up while they're there and they'll often surrendering themselves and abandoning themselves over to that moment and the, the smoke that's in the air and the beer and the, that they're drinking <laughs> whatever and it'll be just this awesome experience and guess what they do when they're done they go home and tell everybody right they can't wait to go to work the next day and tell everybody do you think the church wants that? Yeah. The church wants everybody to have such a good experience, like you were saying earlier, that they're going to leave and they can't wait to go tell everybody about a feeling and an emotion and an experience that they had. Not what they heard. Not that they were convicted of their sins and forgiven of their sins. We don't go around telling people that. I mean, if you've ever been to any rock concert ever... Uh, I try to think uh, uh, to one of the. I, I have seen very few in my lifetime. I saw a Tom Petty concert, a Santana concert, you know, way back in the day. Um, but they're they're moving experiences. You know, the entire crowd is tremendously caught up uh, by the end of the evening in, in the rush of emotions that have been created by the band, if the band's any good. And of course, you can throw a little drugs into that, <clears throat> and it heightens the experience all the more. But nonetheless, I mean, you could go into that and you could say, "Wow, there's there's a spirit at work here." And and some groups do. I, I remember at the end of the Santana. Santana concert, uh, Carlos Santana prayed, uh, prayed to Jesus, Buddha, Christo, right? Um, well, who the heck is that? I know, I don't know who that is, um, but, you know, he, he used all these different God names, shoved them together, and the whole uh, place became a pagan worship service where the Spirit was moving, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Right? It was the Spirit of the age twisting emotions to convince us we were spiritual people, yeah? Uh, it's, huh, Potent and, and powerful is underestimated. I don't think we have words to describe uh, how strong mysticism can be. Have you ever heard the phrase, the spirit was really moving oh, yeah. there? Or it was a spiritual event. It was a spiritual... We are a spirit-filled church. You'll see that on, on church signs. We're a spirit-filled church. We could say that as Lutherans because the Holy Spirit is there through word and sacrament. But we don't say it because when people see it, they think about 
what it really is saying, that we're a spiritual church, we're an emotionally driven church, where the Holy Spirit is rocking the, the building, you know, every Sunday morning. So what actions are often seen at concerts? And you guys haven't been to them, so you don't know. But concerts, a lot of people are like, they're just like, oh, you're singing a love song, or you're doing, they have their hands up in the air, right? Well, which of these is a rock concert? One on the left. What makes you say that? It's got lights. It's got lights. The other one has lights too, right in the camera. Yeah, it looks like some church services. They both look like contemporary worship services. Yeah. Right. This one is a rock concert, probably because of the, <coughs> the horns or whatever. Maybe they do that in church. I don't what about know. The guy doing the rabbit. And the rabbit. Yeah. They got all their phones out too. But this is the one that's that's the the rock concert. Hmm. That's the one that's a contemporary worship service. Generally speaking, and these are pictures I found online, there are lots of them, there's not a lot of difference in how they look. So are they trying to achieve the same effect? Playing on the emotions. Yeah, more than likely. Uh, are Lutherans immune to this, this mysticism? No. no. No, we're not. No one's immune to the temptations of mysticism. I know I'm not. If you were to listen to uh, the songs, maybe the uh, the music might have a beat to it. But what about the words? I mean, some words, words matter, right? Words. Some of the words, because a lot of people don't listen to the words when they're listening to the music. I have actually heard, by way of a podcast, um, Christian rap songs, which seems like an oxymoron to me, but it was very, the, the words were actually pretty darn good. You know, I can't stand the style, but the words were good. So the words matter more than the style. It's not that we should complain as hard about guitars and drums and keyboards and stuff. It should be about what are we singing about? If, if you're going to replace a hymn with a contemporary song, are you going parallel, you know, even or up? If you're going down just to play a different kind of style, did you do the right thing? What's your filter again? What's your filter? You know, if you say, well, we're going to replace A Mighty Fortress Is Our God with great, uh, How Great Is Our God, which one really is more, you know, scriptural? The same tune? <laughs> yeah. yeah, How Great Is Our God. He's great. But listen to the whole all the lyrics of most of the contemporary songs, and they're, they're very me-focused songs, you know? Here I am to worship, here I am to, I mean, it's like, yeah, you're here to worship, you're here to bow down, but it's like the focus is on, look at how awesome I am, God, I'm here to worship. I was just thinking that in, in uh, before you were saying that uh, we've got to get them, the wild factor's got to be greater next time, you know, so they get tired this while and you got to get a new while except in traditional worship you want the good old songs yeah, you don't yeah. Want new ones. yeah. I don't want her good songs you want one of them like third century hymns that are just <laughs> awesome like the campfire meeting <laughs> the old yeah. anyway so uh, we'll do one more little thing and then we'll probably I want to come back next week and talk some more about this let you guys mull this over a little bit because I want to get into the emotions and we just don't have time today not our, but um 
What straw man accusation is often made against Lutherans and others who challenge mysticism? Well, first you have to understand that a straw man is a form of argument and an informal fallacy based on giving the impression of refuting an opponent's argument while actually refuting an argument that was not present presented by the opponent. You restate that's they do this in politics all the time. They 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 restate your question so that they can say something and knock it down. That's a straw man. They're not going to actually address the issue. They're going to address the straw man. Uh, so it's one who engages in this fallacy is said to be acting, attacking a straw man. So what would you do? You'd say, well, but you Lutherans are... Boring. Yes, you Lutherans are blah, blah, blah. And, and, and we are exciting. So they set up a, a, a fallacy because then you have to defend, well, we're not boring, you know? Yeah, but we've seen you guys come out of your worship services, and you should see how we come out of our worship services, right? We're accused of having not having the spirit. So that's a fallacy. They set us up and say we don't have the spirit. We have the spirit because we have word and sacrament. But they say we don't have the spirit. Alright? We have Christ, we have the spirit. Um, because we're too stoic. Or too emotionless. Someone's is going to inevitably say, you know, are you talking about Christianity being this emotionally sterile um, life? Uh, are you saying that we are Stoics, that we put away all emotion? Yeah, that is a common uh, straw man that's leveled against uh, concerns about mysticism, and it, it really betrays an, an ignorance of the actual uh, argument. Uh, no, <laughs> of course not. Uh, in fact, uh, in order for mysticism to abuse the emotions uh, in this way, uh, to, to teach us to trust them, there first must be this good thing God created called emotions. There is no such thing as an idol uh, that exists apart from something good. The problem is with idols is that we take something that God created and gave us and called good, and we call that thing God instead of God, right? So if mysticism is the worship of my emotions, it is only the twisting of my emotions into an idol. Similarly, if moralism is the worship of my works, it's not that we don't want to do good works. We just don't find our connection with God through doing good works. Uh, they are not the source of our relationship with God. Similarly, with uh, we'll get this as well with um, uh, rationalism, you know, this idea that, oh, so what you're saying is you've got to check your brain at the door and, and not ever think, oh, you just hate reason. How can you hate reason? Even Luther liked reason. Well, no, that's not what we're saying. Reason's great, provided that it stays in its place and doesn't try to be king of the world, meaning God, right? Uh, it's, it, there's a, a nice thing from Augustine that I think helps us understand evil a little bit. And he kind of uh, taught that evil has no substance. Evil is not a thing. Evil is a twisting of something that is good. So in order to have an evil genius who wants to take over the world and, and you know, destroy the universe, uh, you first have to have a genius. And that genius is good. The evil is the twisting of the genius for, for wicked purposes. The same is the case here for, <clears throat> excuse me, for mysticism. Uh, God created our emotions. He wants us to be emotional people. In fact, I think I make a statement at one point in the book that, that emotion is the source of community. Without emotion, we have no community. It, it is our affection for each other and, and our uh, enjoyment of the way that we make each other feel that makes neighborhood such a wonderful thing. 
But that doesn't mean it's our source for God. It doesn't mean that that's the way that God wants to reveal himself to us. The way he reveals himself to us is in his word, whether through the person of his son, uh, literally face-to-face with you uh, back in 2,000 years ago or on the day that he returns, or now through his son's words, which are his own mind coming to you. This is how uh, he relates to you. Will this create emotions in you? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I don't know that how you can understand law and gospel without understanding the emotions of despair and joy. Uh, that's what this word creates. But I don't look to my despair and joy as the proof of law and gospel. I look to law and gospel as the proof of my despair and joy. It's the other way around. Where is the heart? Where is the center? Where is uh, God actually at? In his word, not in my emotions. I'm so confused. Okay. In what way? Well, it's the way he kind of you look for God in this, but you're really looking that for that in God. And, you know, it's just awfully hard to consume all that. Yeah, it is. You're not conscious of it, it is understanding what's the cause and what's the effect. Yes. It's, it's, it's what, and, and we could just kind of click through here. We don't have to discuss everything in detail, but. Um, because this is probably the last slide. Um, How do you know when you've arrived in the presence of God? Yeah. Brian, Pastor, Wolf Miller, <laughs> Pastor Wolf Miller interviewed Chris Tomlin, who writes probably even songs we sing in this church in the contemporary worship service. And he asked him. He doesn't know how he got the interview, because if he'd done his research, he wouldn't have gone on the show. But he asked him, how do you know that... Um, when you've arrived in the presence of God, because he, he said, he said, what's the role of the worship leader? The role of the worship leader is to lead people into the presence of God before the, like I told you earlier, before the minister comes out, the pastor comes out, that's a, the 45 minutes of leading people into the presence of God. And Chris Tomlin's answer was, you just know it. You just feel that it's there. You, you stop singing praise and worship songs when you know that you've led people into the presence of God. And then they still trickle music throughout the rest of the worship service most of the time, especially during the prayer time, because if you trickle music behind the prayer time, then you get this impression that the Holy Spirit is working, you know, kind of a thing. So how ambiguous is that? How, how unreliable is that? <laughs> you know, how do we know that, that we're in the presence of God as Lutherans? It's not hard because he's present everywhere. <laughs> exactly. He doesn't just show up in the contemporary service when they sing songs for 45 minutes. He's everywhere. And wherever two or more are gathered, there he is among them. Where his word and sacrament are present, he is there among them. We know he's in the worship service, even if we don't feel like he's in the worship service. There's lots of times I go to church and I don't feel how about Something. you walk away from communion and you don't feel forgiven? You feel the same way you went when you walked up there. Right. But forgiveness took place. Right. So you're, you, are you going to be led by your emotions to say, I must not have been forgiven this time because I don't feel forgiven, which is mysticism, or I know I'm forgiven because God says I'm forgiven. Right. And that's what we're, what he's, the distinction he's drawing. You, you get... You get you put emotion in its right place. Emotions are good, and we all have emotions, right? So we're going to use a distinction here that is usually applied 
in theology to reason, and that is there is a magisterial use of reason and a ministerial use of reason. When it comes to reason, what do those two categories mean? Sure. The old the defenders of the Bible, especially during the conservative versus liberal debate, uh, were able to recognize that one of the things that higher criticism did, in fact, it's almost definitional, is it looked at the scriptures and put the scriptures underneath the uh, scrutiny of our own mind and our own reason so that the, so that reason rose above the scriptures and ruled over it. And the defenders of the truth of the scriptures recognized that as the magisterial use of reason, that reason was a magistrate or a lord or a ruler, and the text was forced to serve our reason. Uh, we, we recognize that even when we're debating with people about, for example, the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says, this is my body. That's what the scripture says. And people say, well, that doesn't make sense. So it must mean something different. We say, you're letting your reason rule over the text rather than letting the text rule over your reason. So we want to recognize that the proper role of reason is to, we don't throw reason out altogether, but to bring our reason to serve the text, to understand the words that the text is giving to us and to believe what the text says. So rather than being the Lord, reason is the servant, the minister, the ministerial use of reason. And I think that's a helpful, I mean, it's a, it's a particularly helpful category when it comes to thinking about reason and the scriptures, but I think it's, it can also be a helpful category when it comes to the role of our emotions, that our emotions uh, don't rule over the text, but rather uh, we uh, uh, let our emotions serve the truth of the text that the Lord speaks to us. And I think that's the walk away. What are you going to walk away with today? Right? You've got to do the corporate thing. What, what's our walk away? Right? Well, our walk away is that our hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts. Our hearts and our emotions are given to us by God. Our reason is given to us by God, but not to be our Lord's. You know, we don't say that doesn't sound right, so my reason must trump scripture. We don't say it doesn't, I don't feel forgiven, so I must not be forgiven. No, God says you're forgiven. Trust. Faith is trust in what God says. Trust that you're forgiven. That's faith. Right? And God sent preachers, teachers, all these people, right, to, to, to equip the saints, to build up the body of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or carried away by our emotions, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are grow up in every way into him who is the head, which is Christ. This, God is magisterial. His word is magisterial. Everything else is ministerial to it. I've been struggling with this for a long time because I married into an extended family that's very evangelical, very mystical. And how do I deal with that on a daily basis? I have to just spend as much time in God's Word as I possibly can. Because I have to let God's Word be true and every man a liar, <laughs> so to speak, you know? Um, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these were written, right? Don't look for new signs. Don't look for new wonders. The Greeks seek after, or, no, the Jews seek signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, right? Seek what? Jesus Christ. Just seek Christ. 
These things are written so that you may believe, and by believing you have life. So it's, it, it, it's hard. I, that's why I put the disclaimer up front, because it's hard. I've been struggling with this for a long, long time. Like, I was just on my way somewhere, and I prayed that if this wasn't where I was supposed to go, that God would turn my car around and, and head me back the other way. Well, God might put some obstacles in your way if you're not supposed to go there. You know, I guess that's possible, right? He may suddenly, you know, have you run out of gas, even though you have a full tank. Yeah? It's just challenging. How many times and it's okay heard, for it to be challenging. How many times you heard somebody start a car and they didn't even have a battery? <laughs> well, there's that whole, I go to church every week to refill my tank, you know, kind of, that's, that's all mysticism, you know. You should be studying the word daily. But, um, any final thoughts? Because that's really where we, where we end. Thank you for hanging in there. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We know that sometimes what we have to learn from you and from your word is challenging, and we just pray, Lord, that, that the, the goal is to, to find true peace and true comfort in you and your word, to have that faith that trusts that what you say is true, Lord, not because we believe it, but because you said it. Help us, Lord, to keep our emotions, our reason, and, and uh, all things in their proper place, Lord, uh, ministerial to you and to your word, not magisterial, not trying to be our lords. It does happen to all of us, but help us, Lord, to, to recognize it when it happens and to um, confess it and repent of it and, and turn from it. Thank you again for this time, Lord. Uh, we, we pray that it wasn't uh, challenging in a way that's damaging. We pray that it's challenging in a way that draws us closer to you and your comfort. And we ask you to bring us back next week to continue our studies. In Jesus' name, amen. Told you it would be challenging. <laughs> well, I hope you were challenged by this Bible study. If you were, please remember to leave a comment either on Facebook or at questions at cafesolablog.com and I will respond to those questions at my earliest convenience. This has been the fourth episode of Has American Christianity Failed? The Book Study Bible Study. I'm Christopher Hogan. I thank you for joining me, and I look forward to sharing more with you during our fifth episode coming up very soon. God's blessings on your day. Remember to like and subscribe, especially on YouTube. Remember to subscribe, because if you don't subscribe then YouTube doesn't know how you're enjoying the videos. And I want to get the video subscriptions up over 150 and would be really nice to get them close to um, 200. And if I can find out who happens to be the number 150 subscriber, I'm going to send somebody a copy of a book. Pastor Wolf Miller put these out and I have extra copies. And I would love to send one to somebody for both the 150 mark and the 200 mark. So if you leave a comment... I'll figure out how to contact you, and if you're number 150 or number 200, I'll send you a copy of the book. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us for this Bible study on Pastor Brian Wolfmuller's book, Has American Christianity Failed? For more from Christopher Hogan and Cafe Sola, go to cafesola.com.